obviously Ukraine is on our minds. For yeah, yeah. It's a major historical moment, I think. And um, so that whole topic of war and um, of course, I see that, among other things, in the context of patriarchy. I mean, yeah. can this live streaming war be the last war, maybe? You know, will enough people wake up? And then could we put our energies to our war against nature and Mother Earth? And I, if I have to summarize where I see it as kind of the apogee, the, the um, completion of patriarchy. You know, I yeah. think that what patriarchy has done is now exploding literally in front of us. And it's not just the war against humans in Ukraine. It is also the war against Mother Earth. And um, so that's kind of a context in which I've seen this. And of course, evil is on display. I mean, and, mm. and you know, we, we have to start. You know, I think one of religion's biggest mistakes in the West for centuries has been to oversell sin <laughs> we yeah. so oversold sin that evil you know we we don't even know know what that is we don't have a language to talk about it. and i wrote a mm. book on evil years ago and um, mm. um a new version came out a few years ago the forward by deepak chopper and he made the point he said that um the number one spiritual issue of the 21st century is going to be evil and uh what I did was try to create a language around it because sin is so distorted our thinking about evil that um, I, I took the seven chakras of the East, burned them seven capital sins of the West. And I think it really works as a, as a language to understand in more depth what evil is like. And so you can take Putin's actions and you can see all seven aberrations of the chakras in what's going on here. But the same can be said of our attitude toward the earth. And even now, I, I'm concerned that this preoccupation with Ukraine war could set us still back from uh, the, the, the bigger war we're engaged in, which is against Mother Earth, which in fact, I could, I hope, could help stand back from human wars against humans to see the bigger picture, because when it comes, obviously, to the health of Mother Earth, uh, there's not Ukraine and Russia and China and the United States and the UK yeah. and the rest. We're all in that together, the one common enemy. Why shouldn't this be where we should put in all, all of our genius for war into that? And because, um, you know, this study came out again just two weeks ago from the UN that now it's seven years we have left you know so we can't we have to be careful of overreacting in some ways to this um, European conflict and um, I think the struggle of Mother Earth gives us a perspective and um, you know that so we don't want to lose lose track of what's really primary here because it won't matter between Ukraine and Russia, if... Uh, if there's no planet to support life in the foreseeable future. Exactly, for anyone.
I'm very delighted to be speaking with Matthew Fox, who is a theologian and activist. In 1993, he was expelled from the Catholic Church after 34 years by Cardinal Ratzinger, later Pope Benedict XVI. His mistake was reviving creation spirituality, which decries original sin, which is the doctrine that we're all born sinners, in favor of everyone born is a blessing, which is seeing all creation as divine. Creation spirituality blends teachings from the Christian mystics with science, the arts, social justice, environmentalism, and ideas from other spiritual traditions worldwide, including those of indigenous cultures. Wasting no time, Fox became an Episcopal priest the year following his ouster. And so we'll be speaking today uh, about a number of things, one being um, the war in Ukraine and the larger question of war, um, both between nations and also the war against our environment and, and, um, and Matthew's thoughts on that. And we'll also be talking a little bit about the um, things that he explores in his upcoming book, which is titled Essential Writings on Creation Spirituality, which is going to be released quite soon, I believe. Yes, Matthew, at the end of March. So with that, uh, welcome, Matthew. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Jacob. Good to be with you. Following the reading of your bio, I think everybody who's listening and is going to want to hear the story of how you got expelled from the Catholic Church. And um, I, I love that we get to talk about this because this interview is actually part of a series of interviews that I'm doing that I'm kind of loosely titling Radical Theology. And I think, you know, of all the people I've interviewed so far, you are perhaps, at least in your own history and, and the story of, of your work, you are really the the consummate radical or you have been at least with regards to the orthodoxy and so you know let's talk about that what happened there what was the um what were the circumstances around being expelled from the catholic church well just to be a little more accurate i was expelled from the dominican order in the catholic okay. church to which i'd belonged for 34 years and um but there is a list of complaints from cardinal ratzinger who became Benedict, as he said, number one, I was a feminist theologian. I didn't know that was a heresy, but here we go. Number two, <laughs> I called God mother. Well, I've proven that all the medieval misses called God mother. Julian Norwich, uh, over my shoulder here, my most recent book is on her, and that's the painting on the book. Um, she is a, the most developed theology of motherhood of God of anyone until the late 20th century. And she lived in the 14th century during the bubonic plague, by the way. She was wow. seven when the bubonic plague hit. And as you know, I mean, talk about pandemics, one, between one out of two and one out of three Europeans died in that plague. And yet she stayed utterly true to the creation spiritual tradition. She says, God is a goodness in nature. God is the goodness in nature. And, um, what was the third objection? Let's see. Oh, I called God child. Well, I don't know what, what Cardinal Ratzinger does for Christmas, but uh, I don't know. Calling God child is a heresy. But this is really a Rorschach test about the very sick papacy of 34 years. 34 years we, we went through Pope John Paul II and then Benedict XVI. Pope Francis, fortunately, is a big improvement. But anyway, um, it's kind of downhill from there. Well, of course, I prefer original blessing to original sin. That was really my book called Original Blessing, Do the 
top off the roof of the Vatican. They couldn't stop talking about it. When it came out in Polish, I said, oh, good, now the Polish Pope will get it. No, he didn't get it. <laughs> the point of original blessing is check your Bible out, folks. Page one, Genesis one, doesn't mention sin once. It's all about the goodness of creation. The sun is good. The plants are good. The animals are good. At the very end, humans come, and it's very good. Even humans are in on the very goodness. And that word in Hebrew can also be translated beautiful. So what's really being said in Genesis 1 is it is very beautiful. And isn't it? And if we've lost it, I swear 90% of Christian preachers for centuries had the first page of their Bible ripped out by somebody. I don't know who, but they should get that page back because it's not anthropocentric. Sin is human. Sin is only about two or three hundred thousand years old. The universe is the original blessing. It's grace. As Eckhart says, nature is grace. And uh, so it's a huge detour. Now, when did original sin happen? Fourth century, Augustine, the ultimate dualist of all time, who defines spirit as, quote, whatever is not matter, unquote. You can't get more dualistic than that. In contrast, Aquinas, who's of the creation spiritual tradition, says um, spirit is the elan and the vitality in everything. So the, the grass in my backyard has spirit. A tree has spirit. A horse has spirit. Yes, and humans have spirit. So, um, you know, there's been this detour. Now, we can say, why has original sin become so important in Christianity? Well, check, check it out. Fourth century Augustine. Fourth century, Christianity inherits the Roman Empire. Oh, mm. if you're going to run an empire, original sin is great. It gets people in line, and it gets them all confused about why they're here. And, of course, remember, too, Augustine links original sin to our sexuality. Well, that's been haunting, you know, Western religion for 1,600 years, too. But the creation spiritual tradition breaks with that dualism, and Jesus never heard of original sin. No Jews ever heard of original sin. What the heck went on that Christianity went down that rabbit hole? And um, of course, you know, humans are born defective, but then again, uh, all creatures are. There's a beautiful phrase from Adoram, who's Jewish and not Christian. He talks about the original wound. Now that's much better language, an original wound. And he, he defines the wound as, our, as separation. When we leave our mother's womb, it's such a shock that this, this comes back every time we experience deep, deep woundedness in our lives, and it's the original wound. And then he says, how do you solve the original wound? He says, unio mystica, he uses the Latin words, the mystical union, which we find in both art and love. He says, that's how you resolve the, the original wound. So... Um, so Christianity has wandered so far from its Jewish roots, which is Jesus' roots, in order to rage empire stuff. And uh, I think that we're undergoing a lot of that collapse right now of, of patriarchal uh, um, pessimism. And, and patriarchy, too, took over the church. Obviously, Jesus, one of the exceptional things about Jesus was that he welcomed women as equals. And, uh, and yet the church has often fallen into a, a dualistic uh, practice there, too. 
Yeah. So when you were expelled from the Dominican order, um, you know, how did that feel to you and how long did it take you to sort of reorient yourself and decide what was next? Well, first of all, I knew it was a political act because before that they had silenced me for a year. And the very year they silenced me, they silenced Leonardo Boff, who was the most read Catholic theologian in South America, liberation theologian. And they silenced Eugene Druemann in Germany, who was the most read Catholic theologian in Europe. He was a psychologist as well as a priest. And I, at the time, had been the most read Catholic theologian in North America. So obviously it was a political act. Um, But when they actually, when I got the pink slip from my provincial, I actually was surprised. I was naive. I just finished a major work on Thomas Aquinas. And I thought, oh, now, you know, they'll be happy. But no, they, they weren't. And um, so I sat down on my, with the letter in my hands, it came FedEx, and my stairs at, right by the front door. And I just thought, and a, and a thought came to me, you are now a post-denominational priest. Now, I'd never heard that phrase before, posted over. That's the phrase that came. And, um, and then I realized, you know, they, uh, that Leonardo Boff in Brazil, he had left and, joy- and become a layperson. <clears throat> he became laicized, so formally moved from priesthood to laicy. And so that was an option. Uh, the other option is to hide under a rock, which was the Vatican wanted me to do. But shortly after that happened, I I was finishing my book on reinvention work, and I ended with a chapter on ritual. And I met a a group of half a dozen young people from Sheffield, England, flew out to see me in Seattle, where I was doing a workshop. And they had invented something new called bringing rave into Christian liturgy. They called it the the nine o'clock service. And um, I was amazed with the with meeting them in their story, make a long story short, I, I went to Sheffield, I checked it out, because here I just written a book about reinventing ritual, and they were doing what I had, what I had proposed, bring the body back, and, uh, and so forth. And so, the, and the new art forms, DJ and VJ and rap and all that. So make a long story short, I said to them, how can I help you guys? And they said, well, we're already using your theology, especially the cosmic Christ theology, but um, if you were to become an pri- uh, Anglican priest, you could run interference for us because you get what we're doing and no one else does. So I prayed about it. And then I went to the bishop in San Francisco, the Episcopal bishop, and said, hey, here's the deal. I'm thinking seriously becoming Episcopalian priest, but only for one reason, to work with young people to reinvent forms of worship. Because I think worship's important. People are hungry for it. And what we have is about mostly about turning pages and daring the preacher to keep you awake. Make a long story short, Bishop Swing, a wonderful guy, he said, go for it. He gave me a green light, and so I became Episcopal priest. So it was kind of an Aikido move, really, when I look back on it. I didn't hide under a rock, and, and I didn't leave the priesthood as such. I decided, well, um, I've got this power, if you will, and why not use it for something worthwhile, work with the young people. So that's what I've been doing for 25 years, and we've done over 100 of these masses. We did one at the last... Um, um, gathering of uh, the world parliament of world religions in toronto 500 people showed up including monks in their uh, buddhist monks in their outfits and so forth and all kinds of people said it was a high point of the 10-day experience for them one 41 year old woman told me said she says by far away the most powerful religious experience of my life and so forth so i know that the power of ritual 
I'm grateful to the Catholic Church for for um, baptizing me into that. Uh, but I also know that it it deserves new language today. Just like in the 12th century Renaissance, you know, the burst of of lights that was allowed into the Gothic cathedrals because of the new architecture, um, and then the 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 birth of those wonderful stained glass windows. You see, they were new ways to communicate. I compare the stained glass windows of the 12th century to the electronic revolution of the 20th, late 20th century. And why shouldn't we take these things into a spiritual uh, practice? And that's why DJs and VJs are part of our, our, um, our practice. And um, we've had wonderful experiences with the cosmic, we call it the cosmic mass. Well, it sounds fantastic. I need to get to one of these masses. It sounds like <laughs> a, a real fun time. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about your approach to creation spirituality, which is sort of key is key to your work and its contrast with what you call fall redemption um, religion. Um, and you've been speaking a, a little bit about this already in terms of kind of the you know political way in which the church has you know focused itself around. Um, original sin. So I imagine that's a part of it. But what is what are the the what is the difference between creation spirituality and and fall redemption religion? Well, <clears throat> one is anthropocentric. You begin with sin, like original sin, and then you end up defining religion in terms of redemption entirely. And this is especially reinforced in the 14th century. I've already alluded to Julian, but you see the Black Death, that pandemic freak people out. Of course, they had no scientists, no promise of vaccines and the rest. They didn't know where it came from. You know, there were clubs formed of men who would beat themselves regularly. They'd go from village to village beating themselves, flagellation clubs. And it grew. It became a big deal. Why? Because they said that it must be my sins that have brought on the pandemic. Well, obviously, that's kind of pre-science, but that's particular. It became so popular, the Pope had to intervene and say, no, chill, this is not going to kill the bubonic plague for us. So <laughs> kudos to the Pope. But um, uh, the point is that the West lost its love of nature. Nature now became something to be fearful of. And that was the 15th, well, 14th century. And it was only two centuries later, less really, 150 years, that the Protestant Reformation came along. And still in that mindset, and the whole argument, if you look at the argument between the Catholics, Council of Trent, and the reformers of the 16th century, <clears throat> none of them talk about creation. None of them. They're talking about going to hell or not going to hell, you know, about how you get to heaven. So life has shifted from this world to life after death. And I swear that that redemption motif has dictated to religion for the last 500 years. And, and one of the results is we're now facing the death of the planet as we know it and of our species. We're facing extinction. Because, and one big reason is because religion is more, is as Pope Francis puts it, narcissistic. And um, asking the question, Christopher Stendhal, a great Lutheran theologian, wrote this. He said, uh, the question, am I saved, is not a biblical question. It's a neurotic question. It's not a Jewish question at all. The I is not in the question of salvation. Tikkun, you're healing the world in Judaism. You're not, what should I say, making your private way to heaven and out of hell. 
So this distortion of Christianity has been reinforced by the bubonic plague and by the fear of nature. And then of course, in the 16th century, you had this split from religion and science, which was another nail in the coffin because science then became something that religion was afraid of or something. So, um, okay, so the, the, the creation begins with creation, Genesis one, check it out. And it's all about goodness. And the word blessing is just a theological word for goodness. So the, the universe is a blessing. The earth is a blessing. We're beginning to learn this now that the earth is dying at the hands of human beings. It, is it too late? I hope not. But um, the creation tradition is the oldest tradition in the Bible. It's the J source in the Hebrew Bible. It is also Jesus tradition because it is the wisdom tradition. The wisdom tradition of Israel, which of course is quite late in Judaism, is just 100 or 20 years before Jesus, but it really is a summary of the prophetic tradition, but it is also very ecumenical uh, because nature belongs to people of all religions, obviously. And so um, uh, it's about finding God in nature, in creation. And that's what Jesus did, obviously. Look, look at his parables. There are many scholars who believe Jesus was considered illegitimate in his village, and so he was not welcome at the synagogue on the Sabbath. So while others went to the synagogue to pray, Jesus went into nature to pray. And uh, of course, we also know he apprenticed with John the Baptist in the desert, and the desert in that time had lions in it. <laughs> Jesus came of age with living with lions in the desert. So Jesus was of the wisdom tradition and the prophetic, but they, they wrap into each other. So um, why wouldn't we be interested in this? And then um, the great explosion of Grace Bishop was the Middle Ages, where you had the Celts, especially, settling down into the Rhineland and northern Spain and northern Italy. So you had Hildegard of Bingen. Two years after she died in the 12th century comes Francis of Assisi. He was born. Then a few years before Francis died comes Thomas Aquinas. Then Mechtilda Magdeburg, a Beguine, a member of the women's movement of the Middle Ages, a Beguines. And Chris Petra is feminist because uh, wisdom is feminine in the Bible and, and um, nature is, is, is part of Mother Earth. And, and, and of course, then you had the great Julian Norwich, who was the first woman to write a book in English. And uh, she's brilliant in resisting the fall redemption, woe is me, the patriarchal, woe is me, self-pity of patriarchy, and, and calling for our, our creativity and our, our love of the world. And, and then I'd say one other great figure was Nicholas Acuza in the 15th century, one of the launchers of the, of the Renaissance, a, a mathematician and scientist. So <clears throat> about whom, David Bohm, the recent physicist, he said, I will more to Nicholas Acuza than I do to Albert Einstein, which is really stunning. But um, so anyway, it's a tremendous family tree. And of course, in the 20th, 21st century, you have people like, um, of course, Thomas Merton, who was converted by Meister Eckhart in 1958. But it was Suzuki, the Japanese Buddhist, Zen, think about Zen to North America, who said, read, told Merton to read Eckhart. You're one Zen thinker of the West. And, um, and of course, you have uh, all kinds of other figures, um, including Mary Oliver, her wonderful poetry and so forth. Um, it's exploding. Thomas Berry and Brian Swim and all the work on the new cosmology. 
in our in our lifetimes all that is creation spirituality and um uh so that in a in a in a nutshell is is the difference and it's not patriarchal therefore it's not pessimistic it it because it's about creativity um Otto Rark, the great psychologist, says that uh, a pessimism comes with the repression of creativity. So to honor the mother again, to honor the divine feminine, uh, is to bring creativity alive. I mean, one of my books is called Creativity, Where the Divine and the Human Meet. And I think we are all artists. And all artists know that, that in our acts of creativity, we don't look at our watches. We're, we're going along for the ride. And it's an act of grace. The presence of the divine is there, and we know it. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. So uh, all these great, great souls uh, have so much to gift us with at this time, because in our postmodern times, we need pre-modern wisdom. Uh, we can't just run on the mindset of modernism. And pre-modern wisdom begins with the universe. Thomas Aquinas said, 13th century, the most excellent thing in the universe is not the human. The most excellent thing in the universe is the universe itself. And we are all here, all creatures are here to serve the universe. Well, this is creation spirituality. And this is what we need if we're going to um, uh, uh, make detour the extinction that we're headed for, which scientists tell us is, is on our doorstep. Yeah. One of the things I really appreciate about your work is the way in which you are kind of raising up a new canon of of writers and thinkers um and uh and spiritual and religious leaders you know many of even psychologists you know Otto Rank you mentioned um you know many of whom you know I, I've heard of before but I think they uh, some of them especially are quite marginal and so and the way in which you bring them to the center and also especially you know women I mean I didn't even know about um Julian of Norwich and I'm really excited to explore her work more because it just sounds so incredibly fascinating and you know one is just it's just so illustrative of our situation that that her work would be so little known right exactly. um so I want to talk about the four components of creation spirituality, just to dig a little deeper. And those four components um, are via positiva, via negativa, via creativa, and via transformativa. Obviously, we're talking a little bit about creativity. So we've been speaking perhaps about the third a little bit. But can you go through these and, and just briefly explore how these four um, are connected to your approach to creation spirituality? Sure. Can I just take a minute to respond to what you said earlier? Just that one word. Oh, yes, of course. When you said, I'm bringing these marginal voices. <clears throat> um, I'm thinking of the, um, the scientist who first wrote about the paradigm shift. And he says, the paradigm shift is when uh, what was on the margin comes center, center stage. And uh, so I just want to affirm that wonderful word you used, and I'm, I'm proud that you said that, that you recognized it. it's true. The people I've, I bring forward, many people have not heard of before, Hildegard had been one of the greatest Renaissance yeah. minds ever, and she'd been repressed, first because she's a woman. But yeah. in our lifetime, they made her a saint and a doctor of the church, which is really cool. I call her a Trojan horse because she is a feminist. And mm. for the Vatican to bring her into into the being a doctor of the church is you know that's a trojan horse folks there's a, you know they didn't know what they were doing and, and I'm, I'm delighted they did it so anyway 
Um, and of course, Eckhart was condemned a week after he died, and therefore he's been under the bench when it comes to theologians, though philosophers have kept her alive, him alive. Yeah. Um, Ernst Bloch said he was a big influence on Karl Marx. Hmm. So anyway, back to your uh, question. Yes, the four paths of Christian spirituality are a deliberate, conscious effort to move away from the three paths called purgation, illumination, union, that have dominated Western spiritual theology, and, well, and Eastern too, really, uh, by Eastern, of course, I mean, the Orthodox, uh, for centuries. They're not biblical. The people who developed them, Plotinus and Proclus, were not even Christian or Jewish. They didn't know the Bible. And yet we've hung on to these things, purgation, illumination, union. So when I was beginning my theologizing after my studies in Paris, I knew that was an issue because it didn't sit well with me. Really, does, does mysticism begin with purgation? Um, in some instances, yes, but that's not the big picture. It begins with awe and wonder and delight. I remember when I was 15 years old, I read Tolstoy's War and Peace. And I told a friend, it blew my soul wide open. I wanted to ex ex explore what happened to me. I didn't have words for it. Of course, it was a mystical experience. I didn't have any words for that. That's where I became a Dominican. I wanted to explore what happened. And it was a positive experience. It wasn't a purgative experience. And just hearing, I remember hearing, walking into my living room, and I'm part of a big family. We had seven kids. And hearing one day, I, I was a freshman in high school, so I was about 13, 14. And I heard Beethoven's seventh. And I, for the first time in my life, you might say, and I just wanted to dance. That's Rio Positiva, you see. Rio Positiva is is recognizing the awe and the wonder and the beauty and the joy and delight of existence. So that's the beginning. And, and Rabbi Heschel says that awe is the beginning of wisdom. Now, these four paths, by the way, I have had very much approved of by Jewish scholars. They say these are Jewish. Therefore, and this is me talking, therefore they're biblical. And those that begin with purgation is not biblical. Eddie Weissel says, uh, not only is original sin not in the Bible, he said, it's alien to Jewish thinking. So, I mean, that's heavy to say it's, it's not even there, but it's alien. Whoa. And Jesus was a Jew. So let's back up a little and look for these other paths. Okay, that's path one. Path two, via negativa, has two dimensions to it. One is silence. It's letting go of all images and all, um, and all uh, input. And of course, that's meditation. And that's what mindfulness in, in the East uh, begins with mind emptiness, of course. And so it's that kind of letting go and being still. Be still and know that I am God, says the psalmist, wisdom literature. But the second part of the negative is suffering and grief. And uh, they too, you know, are an experience of the divine. Um, and they take us to this place of nothingness. And uh, that's very important. We do have to taste our nothingness. War and other deep losses, including things like alcoholism, take us there. Father B. Griffith, a wonderful Englishman, uh, Benedictine, who spent 50 years in India, says that some people, that, you, that uh, despair can be a yoga. Some people do not experience the divine until they undergo a profound crash. And... Um, and, you know, AA people, nobody's talking about. Uh, 
So grief is part of the via negativa then too. But then out of it comes the via creativa, out of both of these, via positiva and via negativa. Uh, Maestrecker says, I once had a dream, even though I'm a man, I had a dream that I was pregnant, pregnant with nothingness. And out of this nothingness, God was born. So the womb has to be empty for the child to be conceived. And um, of course, Eckhart has a whole theology of our birthing the cosmic Christ. He says, what good is it to me if Mary gave birth to the son of God 1400 years ago, and I don't give birth to the son of God in my time, in my culture, and in my person. So we are all meant to be mothers of God. So that's part of the via creativa. Whatever we give birth to is another Christ, if it is doing good in the world, if it's good for the world. And um, as you say, we touched on that earlier. And then the via transformativa, this gives us direction to our creativity because humanity is very creative. That's a, the one thing we have going for us, but we can obviously birth destruction instead of creation with it. So obviously we got nukes and we've got delivery systems on submarines. We can tear down a rainforest in a day that has taken nature and God to build over 10,000 years and there will never be another one. You can't replace a rainforest. So our capacity for, for uh, evil comes here too. And this is why the Via Transformativa is about justice and compassion, which is, of course, the culmination of Jesus' teaching, Luke 6, be you compassionate as you create in heaven is compassionate. So this steers our creativity. And it, it, it puts you know, parameters on our creativity. That all creativity is not something to be joyful about. It's creativity that serves the greater good, the common good. And obviously, <coughs> the good of, of Mother Earth and therefore future generations of humans and other creatures today. So these four paths, and I envision them as a spiral, not as a ladder, but as a spiral, an uh, open-ended spiral, because then they, grow, they, they expand continually. So the, the, what justice and compassion do is bring more people to the table for the Via Positiva to enjoy the banquet of, of life. And um, that's why it's an expanding spiral. So those are the four paths of great spirituality. And again, the greatest blessing I got on them was early. I, I, I was still living in Chicago. That was over 40 years ago. And um, I lectured at GTU in, on the West Coast at the Lutheran School of Theology, and I, I lectured on the four paths. And afterwards, this man came up to me, he said, I am a, I got my doctorate under um, Sholem in Switzerland, I'm from Switzerland. He's a, he was a, a, pro, a, a, a Jewish rabbi. And he said, um, you're the first Christian I've, theologian I've heard who deliberately throughout those three paths, which are not Jewish, and those four paths you're talking about, those are Jewish. Now we can walk together, Jews and Christians. Furthermore, your many references to Christ as wisdom, that is another bridge that we have not walked on together. And that is another bridge. So he said, I'm so excited tonight. I fly out tomorrow, but I'm thrilled that we met and I hope we meet again and so forth. But that was very important to me early in my career because um, like I say, that was one of the objections that Ratzinger had to my theology that I threw the three paths out and replace them with the four paths. Um, but these four paths are so practical. Um, I, I've been sharing them with so many people, all my students for 
years and so many stories, so many experiences. Here's just one. One of my students had a, um, got a master's with me. Then he went on and got a doctorate in English literature. And he did his doctorate on Walt Whitman. And he got a summa cum laude for it because he took the four paths and applied them to Walt Whitman. And his board, you know, they, you know, at his thesis defense said, this is the first thing that's ever made sense. Some people are saying Whitman was Buddhist. Well, he read some Buddhism. Some of these, some of these four paths, they bring everything of, of Whitman alive. So it's applicable to so many aspects of our lives and of our consciousness, these four paths. So I just invite people to try them on and see if it doesn't work because uh, it does work. <laughs> and it takes us deeper, gives us a language yeah. for understanding our spirituality and people we live with. And so we're one day you're in a via negativa mood. Okay, keep your distance. Another you're in this creativa mood. And so we're, and the whole culture too, it, you know, goes through these cycles of the four paths. And the thing is that they, they name the depths. There's this wonderful teaching from Rabbi Heschel, whom, whom I love, because I feel when I'm reading him, I'm reading Jesus teachers, because he was a rabbi, and Jesus was a rabbi, but um, he says that there's a prophet uh, in the depths of every person, in the depths, in the recesses of every existence, is how he puts it, Heschel, the recesses. Well, what are the recesses, and let's all get there, let's find out the prophet. These four paths name the recesses, joy, silence and suffering, creativity, and the passion for justice and compassion. Those are recesses. And if we can agree on that as a species, hey, we're, we're often running together. Beautiful, yeah. Yeah, no, I found uh, each of these paths to be really together, quite um, illuminating and inspiring and, and just the role of, of creativity and art in your approach to spirituality is it's just very resonant and I'm sure has been resident for many people that, that have encountered your work. So I wanna ask about something that you've mentioned a couple times now, which is the cosmic Christ. And you, and you had mentioned in your book that you were sort of surprised that when you had initially started talking about the cosmic Christ, people were like, what is that? You know, and, you, and your understanding was that it was quite an old concept. But I do think that it's going to be a new concept for some of the listeners. So I'm wondering if you could kind of unpack it and explain what, what cosmic crisis and how that might differ from the way that many people think of, of the concept of Christ. Well, it does differ. The Nicene Creed, uh, which is a fourth century document, um, should I say, lorded over by the emperor of the day, literally forcing the bishops to... to overcome the, the divisions in, in the church and so forth. So anyway, so it's, it's flawed. You know, there's lab there that people can think about, but it's flawed. And um, the cosmic Christ, as you alluded to, goes back to the first writings of the Christian Bible, which is Paul. So when he talks about Christ um, um, in Colossians about being um, <clears throat> the... Um, the, the the gatherer of the all and um, uh, all things in heaven and on earth and so forth are, are gathered by the Christ. That's pure cosmic Christ theology. But so is John 1. Christ is the light in all things, in all beings. 
Now science tells us that there are photons or light waves in every atom in the universe. Well, you'd think that Christians would be dancing in the streets about this, that uh, now there's this marriage going on between science and, and spirituality that uh, has been absent for hundreds of years and has made our culture pathological. I mean it. When <coughs> science and spirituality split, religion split in the 17th century, and I, I date it to the year 1600, when the church burned Giordano Bruno at the stake. He was a Dominican, like I was, and Eckhart was, and Aquinas was, trying to do what Aquinas did, bring science and religion together. Uh, he was reading Copernicus in, in the early 16th century, in, in that late 15th century. No, early 17th century, the year 1600. And, and the church didn't treat him real good. They not only burned him with a stake, first they cut out his tongue and tortured him. So um, I think the scientists said, oh my, these believers are a little dangerous. Let's work out a truce. Why don't you believers take the soul and we'll take the cosmos? Oh, what a deal, said Augustinian um, thinkers, because Augustine said that all nature is fallen and who gives a damn? You don't need science. It's all in the Bible. It's the same thing fundamentalists are saying today. So uh, I think that was the moment, really, when science and religion split. And it was schizophrenic. We've had a schizophrenic civilization since. Science went off and found the power of the universe, and but with very little conscience. Then uh, religion went on and became more and more introspective and silly and substituted the word for sin for evil. And, and here we are. But now in the, in the late 20th century, you know, this is the importance of the work of people like Thomas Berry and Brian Swim and the New Cosmology. And there are many others who are uniting the two. I, I think of Joel Primick and Nancy Primick who, who have done a wonderful job of also of bringing the new science into the level of behaviorism. Now see, they are Jewish, and so they're always concerned about morality and behavior. How does the new science affect behavior? And um, so this is, uh, how did I get, a, I'm sorry, I, I forget now your question, I got off on it. Uh, yeah, I think I was, yeah. at, oh, I'm- Oh, oh I, yeah, I'm, about cosmic Christ, okay. That's right, yeah. So. Um, some people say, oh, Cosmic Christ, that's Teilhard de Chardin. Well, it is Teilhard de Chardin. He recovered it in the early 20th century, in the 1900s, actually at talks here in America. And, um, but, um, well, no, there are others who picked up on it in, in America. But the point is that, yes, it was a 20th century recovery, rediscovery, but it's so present. Here's Julian, here's Julian. In this painting of Julian, I'll hold it closer so people can see this see it. She's had a vision where she has a nut in her palm of her hand, see, and it's glowing. And she said that it was a round ball the size of a hazelnut. She said, what is this? And the answer was, this is everything that is created, the whole universe. And she said, but it's so fragile. It could all fall apart. And the response she got was, yes, it is all kept together by love. Now, I have goosebumps right now. That's a 15th century cosmic Christ theology right there in that one experience that she had. The universe is glowing with the divine radiance, with doxa, the glory of God. And that's what the scriptures say, don't they? The whole earth is filled with the glory of God. So where did we lose this important dimension? Well, fourth century, the, the, the church became a, a, <clears throat> an instrument of an empire. 
<clears throat> and in that context, Christ was was um, put on flags, <laughs> and and the cross was turned on its side and became a a weapon very often. Yeah. So um, you go deep. It's also in the in the Gospel of Thomas, which is also an early text in Christianity. Uh, lift up the rock and I am there. And so whereas the I am sayings are all uh, cosmic Christ sayings. So of course the seven or so that we find in John's gospel, I am the, uh, you know, the good shepherd, which is a, a great archetype, by the way, for an ecological moment in history. Uh, I am the, the living bread. I am the, the light. And so forth. all these I am sayings are cosmic Christ sayings because the I am statement from Exodus is a divine name. So um, we are all other Christs, and by we, I don't mean just humans. All beings are another Christ. And um, like uh, Eckhart says, every creature is a word of God and a book about God. Now, word of God is logos, isn't it? That's cosmic Christ. That's John 1. <clears throat> and Matthew 25 is one place where the historical Jesus talks about the cosmic Christ explicitly. He says, you know, you do it to the least, you do it to me. He's stepping out of his personality, if you will, or personhood as a human, Jesus, and becoming everybody. And we're that way too. And so our, our call is to recognize the Christ in everybody and everything. And as Thomas Berry says, ecology is functional cosmology. So again, this crisis of our time our facing our extinction around ecology is a cosmic Christ issue too. If we can bring back the sacredness that is embedded as the glory or doxa in every being, then we're, we're on a path to, to healing. And Hildegard um, <clears throat> of Bingen said, there is no creature that lacks a radiance. That, that's another way of saying there's no creature that isn't a cosmic Christ because doxa means radiance. Yeah. So I can go on and on, but all these wonderful creation mystics are talking about the cosmic Christ. And, and the historical Jesus quest, which was part of the Enlightenment, again, it's so, like everything else in Enlightenment is so anthropocentric. And I only want to talk about Jesus, the historical Jesus. But the truth is that religions are, you know, you can see the parallel in the East. There's the Buddhism, there's Buddha, the historical figure, and there's there's the Buddha nature. And the Buddha nature is all of us. It's in all things. It's in trees, et cetera, et cetera. It's the same parallel idea as in Christianity and the cosmic Christ. And this cosmology, this cosmic Christ, this Christhood, this Christology is far more ancient than the Nicene Creed. And one other point, uh, the Jewish tradition has now gotten on board with this. A wonderful rabbi, Sudeman, who I actually met at a Sundance, number of years ago when he was writing this book, has, he's, trying, he's trying to develop an ecology for, out of Judaism, eco-theology of Judaism. And so he asked one question of his entire tradition, and this is a question. Is every being an image of God or only humans? And he went back to the scriptures, and he went back to the Midrash and all this, Moses, Maimonides, all the way up to today, the Hasidic tradition, everything. And then he concludes at the end of his book, yes, all of creation. And he actually uses the phrase, um, the pattern that connects. 
And I printed that that's exactly Paul's term for the cosmic Christ, the pattern that connects. And he ends his, his book, which is a major scholarly work. So here we have Buddhism, Judaism, and Christianity on the same page. And that's just a start. The, the indigenous people have been on that page forever and many other traditions. But that's the cosmic Christ. And it is what you said. You didn't use the word. It's a paradigm shift. Yeah, because the imperial, original sin, anthropocentric, patriarchal version of religion, which is fall redemption, has failed us. Mm. Yeah, and you know, so many things that you're saying, I'll just add another tradition to Judaism, Christianity, um, and, uh, and Buddhism that you're uh, drawing together here. Um, the tradition that I study mostly is, is Shaiva Shaktism. And in that tradition, I was just recently, I was recently in class reading a text called the Tantrasara by Abhinava Gupta. And he talks about the very beginning, it's he starts out with you know, everything in that tradition is consciousness. And it's, he uses specific, specific word prakasha, which you could translate as light or illumination. And, mm. and the whole beginning of that text is about how, you know, everything uh, there, you know, prakasha is everything and prakasha is in everything. And, um, and so, so much about, you know, what you just have said is, is, is resonant and, and aligned with, with uh, um, that tradition, but also other traditions from um, the Indian subcontinent as well. So it's, it's a beautiful thing and you know it makes of course anytime we we kind of distill down to some fundamental aspects we run the risk of i don't know silencing differences sometimes so that's the risk but there it does seem to be when we look at the esoteric core of so many traditions there is this commonality there is this recurring theme you know this recurring pattern as you just described yes well that's why deep ecumenism is an important part of my theology too because when you go deep, and I talk like in my book, One River, Many Wells, um, I got the idea from Meister Eckhart, who said, God is an underground river that no one can dam and no one can stop up. And then I say, oh, yeah, well, each religion is a well into that river. And if we stay at the surface, we want to fight each other. You know, my, my God's yeah. better than your God, my theology brother, or your goddess, of course, I've been fighting that for centuries. But if we go down the well, we come to a common river. And, and as you say, humans only have so many words in our languages, and one of them is light. And I, my, in that book, uh, one of my chapters is on light, because I found that light is the most common name for divinity around the world. And, and then you, you, know, have, you have the Buddha saying, you know, talking about enlightenment and so forth, of being a light unto yourself. You have Jesus talking about not hiding your light under a bushel and the Christ saying, I am the light of the world and so forth. And um, I mean, this is so universal and it's so beautiful to know that. And <clears throat> so I just love what you say about the importance of light. And yes, doxa is, is another name for light. And, um, and it's found in all beings that every being, uh, and now actually you can measure it. Uh, science can see the light that emanates, not only from living beings, but um, I, I have a friend who, uh, Lorna Byrne, I don't know if you've heard of her, but she sees been seeing angels since she was two years old. She sees light and color emanating from, from buildings and mm -hmm. from trees, and, but from stone as well, you see. So this whole question of consciousness is, is a big one. Science is, you know, struggling with it today. Does everything have consciousness? Well, 
Hildegard says she does. She says, there is no creature that lacks an interior life. Well, mm. that's consciousness. And uh, I certainly lean that way too, that all beings have consciousness of some kind. You know, I, Annie Dillard wrote a, a book years ago called um, Stones Talk. And her conclusion is Stones Talk, but it takes them 10,000 years to speak one word. <laughs> <laughs> they have to be patient. And, and, you know, see, see life and see nature in terms of the bigger picture, not just our, our rushed existence as humans. Well, that, that makes me think about, you know, when you fast forward a video of a plant that's not, that's just in your house and not actually, you know, in the, you know, in, in the flow of wind or anything like that. It's not, you know, in front of a window or something, but it moves, you know, you, you see uh -huh. a plant move when you speed up the video recording of a, of a plant. Mm -hmm. And it makes you think about kind of the temporality of different creatures and the fact that, you know, we, so perhaps we witness the stationary, you know, life seems stationary, but actually if you speed it up in a certain, uh, to a different kind of temporal, you know, dimension, if, uh, you know, if, as it were, then you you see the 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 life flowing and moving, and and it's anything but this kind of stationary creature that you ta have taken it to be. Exactly, exactly. So let's speak that's about. Um, sorry, go ahead. No, just to say that's where science and technology can help us. You know, as you say, to speed things up and see things going on, and and you know, in a, in a, another um, dimension. Yeah. Or to the the reality. So, you know, we, uh, at the beginning, the way, I can spoke. I, can, I, can I make one more point about stone yes, of talking? Course. Of course. Um, if you've ever done a sweat lodge, and I certainly encourage you to if you haven't, um, that's an incredible invention, creativity, creation by human beings, to heat up stones and pray with them. And because stones are, after all, the elders of the elders. They're the oldest of the beings on the planet. So why wouldn't they have something to tell us? And so notice, this is a power of ritual. This is human technology and genius that we can get the stones to talk to us. And I've been in sweat lodges where stones absolutely talk to me and uh, where they burn red and in the shape of a heart or where people's faces come through and so forth. So the point is that human ingenuity and creativity can begin a new dialogue, if you will, or an ancient one, no, an ancient dialogue with nature and receive uh, lessons and gifts, therefore, from rocks in a sweat yeah. lodge. So yes, usually it takes a stone 10,000 years to speak one word, but in a sweat lodge, hey, up. they're chattering. <laughs> yeah. Just takes uh, 200 degrees. Um, you, I, you know, I I have done a sweat lodge, but um, I, I kind of wish I had been, I obviously wasn't, it was just kind of a random experience, and I don't think it was uh, contained in a particularly effective way this was many years ago now but i i kind of wish that that whoever was leading it had spoken about um the you know how the stones can talk because i think if i had been open to that it would have been a different kind of experience um so yeah i'll have to do it again so let's you're still young too yeah <laughs> i've got some time <laughs> yeah although i really get you know a hot yoga class is already hot enough well you know sweat lodge <laughs> <laughs> Never another level. Um, so, you know, we talked about at the beginning, or I, I mentioned that we would be speaking about, 
you know, some of the more unfortunate things that are going on and we've made it, you know, nearly an hour and we haven't spoke about that yet. So I'd like to devote kind of the, the closing part of our conversation to speaking about um, this very interesting distinction that you make between sin and evil and then how we can then connect that to kind of what's happening in the world, i.e. The, the, the war in Ukraine and, um, and then also the war on our environment. So, you know, first, first off, just to kind of segue into that um, conversation of current events, you know, how do you see this distinction between sin and evil? Uh, I, you know, I could, just speaking for myself, evil has been one of those things that I've, I've struggled with as I've moved away from my kind of, you know, more fundamentalist Christian upbringing, because it's sort of evil was kind of conflated with sin. And also, it seemed just like an... Um, a problematic dualism of good and evil that that uh, you know sort of um, uh, in, it led us to not see nuance or you know gray areas or the way in which certain things can be perceived as you know and also I'm gay so I was told that I was evil and going to hell <laughs> so I have a you know historically troubled relationship with the word so can you kind of you know refine our understanding of 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 evil and how it is distinguished from sin. Well, we were just talking about sweat lodges, so I think I'll start there because Buck Ghost Horse was a, a Lakota teacher who, um, who joined my faculty because he had dreams for 10 years that he should work with white people and he didn't want to, but then he heard about us and he, he just showed up at my door. I didn't hire him and he just showed up. But anyway, we became good friends and um, he set up a sweat lodge on our Catholic campus, which freaked the Vatican out, by the way. The, one of their complaints was that quote, I work too closely with Native Americans, unquote. So anyway, um, he said to me one day, um, he said, in our tradition, fear is a door in the heart that lets evil spirits in. Fear is a door in the heart that lets evil spirits in. Now, to me, that's just very, very profound. Mm -hmm. Because um, in, I'll translate it into our language in the West, fear is sin. Fear is sin. Not always, fear can just be an emotion, but if we yield to it, it's sin that allows evil, that invites evil spirits in. Well, I think that's true of all our chakras, not just the heart chakra. So I wrote this major study on evil several years ago, and um, it's called Sins of the Spirit, Blessings of the Flesh, Transforming Evil and Soul and Society. And I got the first part of that from Thomas Aquinas, who says, Sins of the spirit are far more serious than sins of the flesh. Sins of the flesh take you toward God because they are about communion. Sins of the spirit take you away from God. Now, I have goosebumps uh, right this moment because it's, that's so profound. And how, how many preachers did you hear, uh, especially as a fundamentalist, uh, telling you that sins of the flesh take you toward God? This is a saint and doctor of the church. And one of the most incredible minds that the West has ever produced, Thomas Aquinas. Um, but, but like I say, I never heard a sermon that told me that. This was hidden. I, it took me, I've been studying Aquinas for 20 years, and I discovered this about 15 years ago. In, in when It was never taught to me by Dominican theologians. But, um, but I had a long time to think about it. It's true. It's true. So, um, um, and of course, your story is so is so archetypal. I mean, I've been hearing it for decades as a 
priest, as a theologian. I remember once I was having a seminar and mixed, there were Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish people in it. And um, we, I went, I asked to go around and said, you know, what was your, what's your experience of sin? And in the naming of sin, and 95%, both Catholic and Protestant said, by the time they were 15, they learned everything they loved to do was a sin. So they just, just gave up on the word and, and often left, left the church. Um, and of course, that's directly related to what I said earlier. Augustine's idea of, of original sin is concupiscence, that it's our sexuality. Augustine wishes that we, we didn't have our genitals, I guess. And uh, that was his aspiration. <laughs> and uh, uh, Neoplatonists in general are dualistic like that. So anyway, um, so there's this big difference, evil about something really big. And so the, the traditional name is evil spirits. So look at racism, for example. That racism is not just humans treating others badly. It keeps coming back every generation. Therefore, there's something spiritual about it. It doesn't die like we do. We die and go away. But these, you can call it an evil spirit. It's, it's like it's immortal. It's hanging around forever. And you can say that of all the capital sins of greed and of violence. Now, I in my book, I'm careful. I don't call anger a sin. Anger is not a sin. Anger is an energy, an important energy. Moral outrage, that's the only thing that gets anything done. Aquinas says, nothing great happens without anger. So who put anger down? Augustine, <clears throat> the empire time. The, the slave master didn't want the slave to know about anger, which is why they took away the drums, for one thing. You see, when you're trying to control things all the time, that's your primary purpose then anger gets held up as a mortal sin, as a, yeah, as a capital sin. It's not. Violence is the sin there. Not If anger turns to violence, then we've got trouble. The same is true of lust, I think. I think lust is a good word. Where would we be without lust? To me, anyone who's against lust is, is against their parents bringing them into the world. Lust was the moment of your dawn. Why would you put down lust? Well, Augustine did because he was completely confused sexually. His mother was a Puritan before her time, and his father was a libertine. And he needed Freud if anyone needed Freud. And instead, he he took the church on a detour. Um, no, uh, lust is a gift. It's a grace. Of course, we have to steer it. So the real um, shadow side to lust is control, power over. Mm. And when when there's no there's not a relationship of equals, if you will, but a power over, and of course rape is an obvious example of that. But but so are other relationships like sexism, and so forth. So um, Aquinas defines sin as misdirected love, misdirected love. Now that's very Jewish because the Hebrew word for sin is is an archery term. It's missing the mark, missing the bullseye. So it's perfect misdirected love. And um, uh, so if the chakras represent these energy points in our psyche and physiology, and I go with seven of them, uh, which is the dominant teaching in the East, but there are other numbers too with other groups. But the point is, if I say, well, if the seven chakras represent the, the energy points that are strong in us, when they're healthy, that's wonderful. But if they're off-center, maybe it corresponds to 
to what we call sin in the West, the capital sins. So sure enough, it, and, and why am I troubling people with this? Because we need a new language, because religion has messed up the whole concept of sin and evil, messed it up. Just you, you were a perfect exemplar of that, I mean, what you just told us. So let me give an example. The seventh chakra is, of course, the culmination of the kundalini energy and the fire inside our, our psyche and our body that culminates all the way up, and then it culminates here, and that light goes out to the world and is healthy. It goes out to serve other people, to build community, to work with other light beings, including angels, including ancestors, and including good people on the earth today trying to do good. That's what a healthy seventh chakra is. But a shadow seventh chakra, the capital sin that misses a mark, is this, envy. Envy recognizes the good in others delight in others. But instead of wanting to link up with it and do good together, it wants to shoot it down. And all wars, including the war in Ukraine today, mm. I think are born of envy. And Putin is utterly envious of having a, even a, a, a beginning democratic nation on his border. And I think envy has a lot to do with this war and with all wars. And with patriarchy, it's absolutely taught in men to be competitive at any cost. It's the reptilian brain. The reptilian brain says, I win, you lose. <clears throat> you don't compromise with the crocodile. You're either going to lose or you're going to get out of there. And that's how the reptilian brain works. And so part of patriarchy is feeding the reptilian brain. Um, and uh, that has to cease. And yesterday, there's no time left. And so how do you calm the reptilian brain? Well, that's what meditation does. Reptiles are not good at bonding, but they're great at lying alone in the sun. Solitude is their thing. And so every reptile is like a monk, because the monk comes from the word monos, which means solitude. So there's a monk in all of us, just like there's a reptilian brain in all of us. We don't want to kill the reptilian brain. It's 420 million years old. It does a lot of good things for us, including our sexuality. We don't want to kill it, but we need to tame it. We need to say, go to bed now, reptilian brain. I've got other things to do. The mammal brain, half as old as a reptilian brain, is about compassion. As you know, the Hebrew word for compassion, the Arabic word for compassion, comes with the word for womb. So to develop compassion, the reptilian brain has to chill out. So that's where meditation is so important. If we're going to survive as a species, we must learn to calm our reptilian brain. And meditation really helps with that of all kinds, within yoga and, and, and all kinds of meditation. So um, uh, have I gone too far afield? Can you remember the original question? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Evil. yeah. So I, I take all the chakras. Uh, if, if you want me to throw out a few more examples, the fifth chakra, the throat. You know, um, <clears throat> uh, gluttony, Mean, glutus means throat in Latin. So gluttony is a throat issue. Now we think of gluttony, oh, too much food, too much drink. Okay, it's, not, it's a lot more than that today. It's too much consumerism. It's gagging your throat and taking things in. And this is what a lot of corporate capitalism, consumer capitalism wants to do is to stuff us so that the wisdom doesn't come up. But the throat is, is a birth canal for mm -hmm. wisdom. And that's where it lies between the heart chakra and the head chakra. 
because wisdom is a combination of heart and head. So what we should do with our throats is be putting out wisdom, not just in the way we talk, but in singing and music and all, so much of our via creativa. But we can get it stuffed. And many people in my lifetime have come to me, gay people and women, about dreams of ha having their throat gagged. One Catholic sister in our master program, between semesters, she went out and did a vision quest. She came back to me. She said, "This weird thing happened. This eagle kept coming to me and pointing at my throat." And I said, "Well, that's obvious, isn't it?" No, she said. Well, she said about finding your voice, about finding your voice. And when she graduated from her program, she went back to Houston, where her order ran a hospital. And I got a letter from her mother superior saying, "What happened to this five foot?" weakling that we sent to Oakland, she said, she's running the hospital and no one's asked her to, and she's doing a great job. And I said, well, she found her voice. And this is what feminism does for women. And this is what the uh, liberation movement for gays and lesbians does for gays and lesbians. You find your, your voice in spite of the entire culture weighing down on you for religious reasons, as you pointed out, or for political reasons, or for whatever, mostly out of fear and compulsion to control and out of people's own dull sex lives, a lot of projection happens onto gay and lesbian people. So, um, so that's the fifth chakra, you see. And um, uh, it, it stretches our understanding of gluttony. And, and I think consumerism is today's version of gluttony. And, Speaking of the war, I think, you know, Europe and America, we're, we're going to have higher food prices and higher gasoline prices. There's going to be a sacrifice uh, to pay for standing up to the um, white supremacy and Christian supremacy of Russia at this time in history. And, uh, and we should be willing to pay it. And we should be consuming less, therefore consuming less products that, you know, there's been such a, I think your generation especially has been so beaten up by advertisements and consumerism and all that. You know, we just all have to step back from that. The, the world's much bigger than that. Democracy is, demands a price. It demands sacrifice. Anything worthwhile in life demands sacrifice. Talk to parents, especially in the early ages, well, and then teenagers too. <laughs> but uh, the point is that, yeah, good things require sacrifice, duh. And, and our culture's mythology, you can buy your way through life or something and just be happy and, and all that. It's just, it's just contrary to everything that every spiritual tradition has ever taught. Greed is not a virtue. The common good is a virtue. So anyway, I apply these seven... Um, uh, capital sins to all the chakras. And I th just think it's stunning how it works. Uh, let me speak to one more because it's so important. They're all important. Yes. But the first chakra. The first chakra, you know, is, is uh, located in the, um, in the bottom of the spine, the sacrum, at the sacrum bone. And interesting enough, uh, medicine talks about the sacrum bone. That's the holy bone, the word sacrum, holy, sacred bone. And then that <clears throat> chakra links to your knees and to the chakra in your foot or ankle. So dancing, 
brings alive the first chakra because it's about connecting to the earth. And this is so important, of course, any time of eco crisis like ours and eco destruction. Now, what is the first chakra about? It's about vibration. I say that the key to the first chakra is a tail. If we had tails, we might be wiser. Um, and this is why we need animals in our lives because they do have tails. I see the tail as an antenna. Antenna picking up more vibration of the universe. <clears throat> and I know Mother Dog hears a lot of things that I don't hear. And um, so uh, what we now know about vibration is this. Every atom in the universe is vibrating. Therefore making music. Every atom in the universe is vibrating and therefore making music. So this is cosmology. The first chakra is all about cosmology, connecting to the whole, to all the vibrations in the universe. You know, Hildegard of Bingen collected all of her songs, 72 songs, and called it the symphony of heavenly um, revelations, because she heard music from the universe, put it, put it to music, a lot of mystics do. And, um, and the whole idea that angels are constantly singing, that they, yeah. they ride on waves of song. So <clears throat> this is so wonderful that the first chakra then reconnecting to the earth, and this is why indigenous people pray by dancing with their knees bent and because it's connecting to the earth and they slightly move their shoulders to bring in um, Father Sky to ba balance the dance with Mother Earth that the feet are doing. <clears throat> so the recovery of the first chakra is so important today. And this is where I talk about the, <clears throat> the lower chakras are so no-no for pious Christians. You know, don't talk about sex. Don't talk about anger. Yeah, see lust and anger, down and and of course cosmology what what's that leave that to the scientists <clears throat> so the point is we're so education in the west it's all head it's all head in fact it's only one half of the head as einstein said it's only the rational brain that gets honored in education he einstein said quote i abhor american education unquote why? Because it leaves out the intuitive brain, the right brain, the mystical brain. He said, values do not come from the intellect. This is Einstein talking. Listen up. Values do not come from the intellect. All of our PhDs are rational and intellectual. Where are values being discussed in education and how? It can only happen through what I call artist meditation. I, I realized early, very early in my teaching career, in the young 30s, that you can't teach spirituality in a European model of education because it's all head, it's all rational. Spirituality is in the heart and it's in the body and it's all the chakras. All of them are revelations, sources of revelation, including, of course, the second chakra, our sexuality. So we have to, if we're going to survive, we have to not only teach meditation to calm the reptilian brain, we have to get into the lower chakras and the right hemisphere of the brain, which is mysticism. And this is why you, you pointed out what I'm talking about is kind of marginal. You bet it's marginal. The modern age hated mysticism. Theodore Rosek says the Enlightenment held up mysticism as the worst offense for ridicule, as the worst offense against science and reason. In other words, we cut out half our brains. And Einstein noticed it. And I love quoting Einstein because you can't accuse him of being anti-intellectual. So we're underdeveloped when it comes to values. And um, this has to change. And one way to change is to bring artist meditation into all of our, our learning, whether you're in law school 
or medical school. In fact, today in America, there are more medical schools that teach meditation than there are seminaries. Mm. I mean that, it's a fact. And of course, for years I've been saying there are more scientists who are mystics today than bishops. And that's a fact too. So, you know, yeah, we're in a, a very, you know, a time of, of turning over and turning inside out, but that's what a time of paradigm shift is. And obviously we're not gonna solve our problems today, as Einstein said, with the same way of thinking we've been going through for the last 400 years. We need this yeah. breakthrough, we have it. This is where the new cosmology, this is the first chakra again. It just breaks our hearts wide open. There's so much awe in the new cosmology to know that we've been on a 13.8 billion years journey. And we owe all these previous, the fireball, the, the birth of, of the hydrogen, uh, and helium atoms in the fireball, the birth of galaxies, of supernovas and supernova explosions, which are resurrections, and then the birth of, of our sun and all the rest. All this we depended on how grateful we should be to the universe. And, and you know, Aquinas says the essence of religion is supreme thankfulness and gratitude. He doesn't say buildings, ordinations, seminaries, getting on your knees, he says the essence of religion is gratitude. Well, that's the via positiva, isn't it? And Meister Eckhart said, if the only prayer you say in your whole life is thank you, that would suffice. So he's standing on Aquinas' shoulders. He was 15 when Aquinas died, and he had just joined the Dominicans, uh, Eckhart had. Of course, Aquinas had been Dominican too. But um, yeah, we have to start not just talking about evil, but of course, standing up to it. And, and it's in, in us, it's not evil as personal as well as social, we project. And so we have to look at ourselves for greed and then how greed builds into corporate greed and corporations in America today that make billions and don't give $1 in taxes. So the rest of us are left holding the bill for schools and highways and armies and all the, all the rest, but what is going on? You know, and of course, I've been so, during these last couple of years, I've been so depressed, really, looking at lawyers. You know, that it's obvious to me lawyers do not, have, apparently, have flown through law school without a single course on ethics or, or values. You know, that some of them, not all of them, obviously, but some of them are just so out of it when it comes to, to uh, truth, to telling the truth and to looking for truth and looking for the common good and all the rest. It's just appalling. But this is true of lawyers. It's also true of other professions too. And um, so I, I might, you know, I, I've been fighting not just the religious establishment for 50 years, but the educational establishment. But I didn't fight so much head on. I fought subtly, well, really in both cases. But anyway, when it comes to education, I just started my own version of education that brought the right brain in. And we've had marvelous results, just stunning results over the years, not only with adults, masters or doctoral degrees, but also with inner city teenagers that I took my program to. We had incredible results because 64% of black boys in America regret dropping out of high school. And why? It's basically because they're bored. So by bringing creativity in, artist meditation, I had them making movies, boys and girls. And it was astounding the wisdom that came out of these kids. But we also shared with them a value system. Now, being a public school, high school in Oakland, you can't 
talk religious values. So I made up this thing called the 10 C's, cosmology, ecology, um, chaos. These kids have PhDs in chaos, these inner city kids. Um, creativity, compassion, community, courage, critical thinking, celebration, in other words, ritual, and, um, and, um, and a couple more. And then we'd say, okay, make a movie about whatever you want, but bring a couple of those C's into it. In other words, they're bringing values in. And what they did was just marvelous. We also had them doing poetry. And I know 15 years after one kid went through our program, he told me that this was far away, that class was far away the most important and fun class he ever had in his life in, in school. Uh, that kid, who was only a freshman, 14 or so, made a movie on, he liked muscle cars. So he made a movie on ecology and muscle cars. So he changed an engine from running on gas to running on vegetables. <laughs> and he got help from an uncle who was an engine guy and a mechanic. And um, in the end of the movie, he has a race between a gasoline-driven muscle car and a vegetarian muscle car. And you can guess which one won the race. So it was just brilliant. The guy was 14 years old, a freshman in high school. And you know the wisdom that's in these kids. At the end of the semester, I'd have a gathering of the kids and 150 adults so coming and listening to them. And they'd talk about the movie, show the movie, and then take questions. And at the end of the night, a friend who I asked to come, a really neat guy, an ex-minister in his 60s, he said to me, Matt, I'm so moved I can't talk. I'll call you in, in two days. That's how I felt, too. I was so moved by these young kids. They, there's so much beauty inside them, but it's not coming out in school. It's the opposite. They're being told to take exams, mostly about things they, they don't care about. And, but educing, that's what is behind the word education, to educe, to lead out the wisdom that's there. And the young need to hear this today, that, that we need their wisdom. We need intergenerational wisdom, young and old yeah. together. That's beautiful. Yeah, I, um, I appreciate what you're saying about education. And of course, that... Um, that principle of, of bringing the right brain in, or uh, we talk about the intersection of, of scholarship and practice. And um, of course the platform is called Embodied Philosophy, but our whole, yeah, our whole um, agenda really is, is to kind of push back against the orthodoxy of, of the academy and, 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 and as, you, as you describe it, kind of the modern Western education system. Um, so I very much resonate with that with that um, project. Well, we've been really, we have explored so much together today and I it's been such a delight to speak with you. I wanted to ask one last question, which is, um, you know, in, in the book that I had the pleasure of reading, you say that a new commandment has been given to us. And that is that thou shalt love your life with all your strength and energy growing daily in appreciation of the joys of life, and you shall allow and aid where possible your neighbor to love his, her, uh, his or hers and do the same, using common norms of justice to determine life's priorities. And I thought this was so beautiful. And I just wanted to ask you, because I think, you know, it's such a beautiful commandment, and I love that you use that word, um, obviously, you know, in response to the uh, so-called Ten Commandments. Um, but, uh, but you know, I imagine that many right now, given the state of 
you know, the uh, with the situation from the pandemic, the war in 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 Ukraine, and the situation with the the ecological catastrophe, that that it's difficult to uh, to follow this commandment when the world seems to be telling us that it's impossible to love life when everything seems to be falling apart. So, how do we? both cultivate that that love for for life uh, while also attending to the the situation that we're in. Derek Walcott is a poet from the Caribbean islands who won the Nobel Prize for poetry in 1972. And in his acceptance speech, he has this amazing sentence. He says, the fate of poetry is to fall in love with the world in spite of history. I have goosebumps. Mm. The fate of poetry is to fall in love with the world in spite of history. But that's the fate of all of us, because we are all poets. We are all artists in some way. If you can talk, you're an artist, as David Pellins. Mm -hmm. So again, we have to be bigger than anthropocentrism. We have to go beyond what Pope Francis calls our narcissism as a species. So I have another commandment in another book. And I say, uh, you have to fall in love at least three times a day at least three times a day. Now, obviously to say that, I'm not trying to endanger your marriage or your relationship. I'm trying to point out that let's not be anthropocentric about that term falling in love. So you can fall in love with a tree, with a rock, with a dog, with a plant, with a, a star, a, a galaxy, a poem, music. There's so much to fall in love with. And you have, that's to be a positive, that's the practice. You have to nurture yourself, especially in hard times. You know, like, um, there's that wonderful phrase from, um, oh, it's now, I, I do forget names now that I didn't used to. Um, I apologize, I can't remember now. She's a, a black writer here in, in California, Alice Walker. She says, um, fierce times require fierce dancing. Fierce times require fierce dancing. And so we have to, that's what I mean by falling in love. You know, we have to, the, the harder things get, the more we have to find what's worth living for. The more we have to fall in love with the bigger picture, with life. And for me, of course, life is another name for God, but I think it's a better name because it doesn't carry the baggage <laughs> that God has uh, uh, so much over, over the years. And, the empire years, especially. So that's another thing. I think we, we have to open up imaginations about, about divinity and our names for divinity. Meister Eckhart yeah. says, I pray God to rid me of God. Well, that's good advice. Get rid of the all patriarchal God or the empire God or what have you. So we have to find other guys. I wrote a book about this a couple of years ago on uh, alternative names for God. But my point is that, um, yeah, so responsibility uh, becomes ours to fall in love and to find what's, what's truly worth loving. And of course, that includes the humans too and our families and all the rest and our ancestors um, and, and, and call on the angels too. Um, uh, the, you know, other, other beings, humans aren't the only beings in the universe uh, and angels is, is a name for other beings, spirits and call them in. That's what prayer can be. You call them in. You do the four directions. You call in the angels and the spirits from the four directions. And ground ourselves. And again, this is a first chakra work, isn't it? Ground ourselves in the sacredness of creation. And 
let me close with this. You know, the opposite of evil is not good. Bad is the opposite of good, you know. The opposite of evil is the sacred, the sacred. And that's what we've been talking about, talking about the cosmic Christ and the sacredness of nature, the sacredness of our existence, sacredness of this universe. And um, Thomas Berry says that we will not save the planet um, until we recover the sacred. He says that people say you could, you'll only save what you love. You cannot save what you do not love, but also we cannot love what we do not consider as sacred. Mm-hmm. And so this recovery of the sacred is, is front and center. I had a dream years ago, and it said to me, there's nothing wrong with human species today except one thing. You've forgotten the sense of the sacred. I think that sentence is for everybody to meditate on and to apply. Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Wow. Well, Matthew, it has been such an honor and a pleasure to speak with you today, again, about so many things and to be able to um, unpack your work for people that um, perhaps have, have have read your work before or have encountered you or for ha- perhaps they're encountering you for the first time. It really was an absolutely delightful conversation and so rich and so much wisdom for people to contemplate. So thank you so, so much for for sharing your time with me this, uh, well, this morning where you are, but this afternoon, evening for me. Well, thank you. And it's because of you, uh, Jacob, that you've created a program like this, that we can have this kind of fun together. And I thank you for that. I thank you for your vocation and your brightness and um, endurance and perseverance in creating a platform like this. It's very special.